The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, thank you for being so faithful to minister to us through your word, to teach us, to guide us, to direct us, to give us your Holy Spirit, to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, pray that this morning you would be at work in our hearts, Lord. Remind us of what is right and what is true and what is precious and things that are more peripheral. And so, God, guide our hearts this morning. Lead us to worship you as we listen and receive your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, my family was on vacation, and so my wife and I and four little kids drove 20-something hours to Texas. Um, Good news, we're still Christians, which is great. And uh, whenever we go on long trips, I really try to be strategic about when we leave and places we stop. And so we left around 7 p.m. on a Monday night, and we drove through the night, and then we arrived in Arkansas Tuesday morning, just as planned. And there were a couple places I wanted to stop. The first place we stopped was Little Rock Central High School. Now, that may sound familiar to you because it is a location of a pivotal event in the civil rights movement. Uh, In the 1950s, uh, the Supreme Court declared that segregation in schools was unconstitutional. Separate but equal was never separate but equal, and it was unconstitutional to separate uh, African Americans and whites. And so they declared that there to be desegregation in schools. And so the uh, Arkansas, Arkansas School District, the Little Rock School District, decided to start that, I believe it was in 1957. And in 1957, just days before, nine African-American students, known as the Little Rock Nine, were to go into this all-white high school. The governor of Arkansas got on TV and called for the Arkansas National Guard to come and to block these African-American students from coming into the school. In response, uh, the president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower at that time, then called forth his bigger army and uh, called the National Guard to come in and to protect these students as they went into the school. And as you go to the memorial that's across the street, there's a whole museum there, you hear about the things these people went through, that they were spit on, that they were tripped, that they were mocked, that they were ridiculed, that they were harassed by mobs of people going into the school. But what you see is that this Little Rock Nine took a stand. They took a stand against hatred. They took a stand against prejudice, against racism. And they took the stand, and it really changed the course of our history. Well, inspired by the Little Rock Nine, later that day, I took a stand myself. Um, We continued to travel towards Texarkana, Texas, and uh, and we stopped in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, And if you've ever been there, you can go and you can stick your hands in some fountains and there's hot water. Um, But then that's about all there is to do. And so once we were done with that, uh, we decided to climb a mountain and go to this lookout tower. I think I have a picture of it there. So Hot Springs is down there. The lookout tower is up there. And we're down there and we're like, okay, let's climb this mountain or this big hill. I don't know what the difference between a hill and a mountain is, but... a mill, a mountain hill that we climbed up. And so as we're climbing up the hill, you know, for the youngest kids, those are big steps to take. And so we're about, you know, 
five feet up and they're saying, my legs are tired, my legs are tired. And I said, keep going, there's a surprise at the top, right? The surprise at the top is that there's this lookout tower. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be like, you know, Fish Creek, Egg Harbor, or uh, Peninsula State Park. You go there, you climb up, you look out, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be cool. So I'm like, there's this prize at the top, keep going, it's going to be wonderful. And so we get to the top and you see there's this thing at the base and you go in and it is a gift shop. And at the gift shop, you find out that they charge to go up in this tower, okay? Now, it's not like a dollar or two. It's $7 for adults and $4 for kids. And so if you do the math for our family, it would be $30 to ride up a five-story elevator, look out, say, that is cool, and then go back down. And to me, that's just not worth it, right? And so I was so frustrated, and I looked at the prices, and I, I shouldn't have done this. Okay, this was not good, but I would go, man, that stinks. And, and the people there were like, well, it is what it is. And I'm like, I wish, I wish there was a sign at the bottom of the mountain that would say this instead of at the top. And so, so anyways, I decided to take a stand, right? I was going to protest. I am not going up. I'm not paying money to go up in this tower and look out. But I made a promise to my kids that they would get to see something really cool. So I gave my kids money. I said, here, you go up in the tower. I'll sit here in the gift shop and just be awkward with these people, right? And so, um, so I gave my kids money. They went up. About two minutes later, I thought, boy, that was probably a really bad idea to send my kids up in a tower without any parental supervision. But God is in charge, and so it's okay, right? And so, so there we are, and these, these uh, people in the gift shop, they don't care that I'm there. They're laughing. They're joking with each other. My stand had no effect at all. Okay, the point of it is this, is that we all take stands for different things. Some of them are very worthy causes and some of them is just pigheaded stubbornness, right? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, we take, we take stands every day around our house on how dishes should be done or where something should be put away and all of these things. Today, we're gonna be looking at Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas take a stand for something that is worthy, that is valuable, that is precious, They take a stand for the truth of the gospel. And we're going to see today that this is a calling that all of us have who claim faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you would, please open up to Acts chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 35 today. It's in page 923 in the Red Bible in front of you if you don't have one. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you. We love to give them away. Please keep it. And it's page 1200 in the Children's Bible. Now, We use this term gospel, and I realize that it means different things to different folks. And so just want to quickly explain. I know for some folks, the term gospel is like a genre of music, right? And so uh, this isn't what Paul and Barnabas was defending, although it's a great genre of music. Uh, By gospel, I simply mean the good news of how you and I can be saved, okay? That's what the gospel is, the good news of how you and I can be saved. And I'll explain what that good news is later, but, but that's what I mean by gospel, The good news of how you and I, who have sinned against a holy God, can be saved from his just punishment and be with God for all eternity. So that's what I mean by gospel. Now, as we look at this again, we are going to be encouraged to follow Paul and Barnabas' example and to take a stand for the truth of the gospel. Now, you may be here and you may be wondering, how can I take a stand for the truth of the gospel? I'm not an apostle. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. You know, I'm, 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 I'm an engineer. I'm, I'm a mechanic, right? I'm a, I'm a homemaker. How, how do I take a stand for the truth of the gospel? Well, in this passage, there are going to be very four practical ways that God is calling you to take a stand for the truth of the gospel. 
And the first is simply to acknowledge gospel priority. Let me give you a quick recap here. Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Antioch and God sends them out to be missionaries to the uttermost ends of the earth and the, fulfilling the great commission. The church lays hands on them, commissions them and sends them out. And so they go from Antioch to Cyprus up here into this area and they go from from synagogue to synagogue, sharing the gospel with the Jews, the Jews who have been waiting for the coming Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. And he tells them, he has come, he has come, he has come. And then they go to the Gentiles. Gentiles is a fancy word that simply means a non-Jewish person, okay? So he goes to the Gentiles and he tells them about Jesus. And they're starting to trust in Jesus for their salvation. And so they're going around to all of these places and then they, they come back and revisiting all the brothers and sisters in the Lord. And they come back to Antioch and they come back to the home church that has sent them away. And we read at the end of chapter 14 in verse 27, you can look there if you want, that it says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, I want to point this out because this is a drum that they will continue to bang throughout chapter 15. They're talking about how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They're telling the church here. They'll tell the church again. They'll tell people on the way to Jerusalem. They'll tell them in Jerusalem. They'll continue to repeat how Gentiles are now being included into the people of God, okay? And so that's, that's where we are. That's where we are. We're in Antioch with these disciples. So Acts chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. But some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the, gen the conversion of the Gentiles. There's that drumbeat again. And brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostle and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. These first six verses demonstrate that the truth of the gospel is a priority for Paul and for Barnabas and for the early church. It means that doctrine actually matters, especially when it comes to the gospel. You see, in verse 2, it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Now, this is kind of a double negative. No small, right? It means huge. It means big. It means important. It means valuable, right? So they had this, this big debate with these folks who had come in. It had become a little bit aggressive, right? Because it was an important topic. It was a priority in their life. As we read on, we see that there's no resolution. And so they take this discussion, this debate to Jerusalem. And they travel down there. And they tell people along the way about how the Gentiles have been saved, how they're coming into the kingdom. And they get down there and the apostles and the elders put everything on hold to have this discussion on whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, what's so interesting, if you know about Paul and Barnabas, they're fairly significant figures in the Bible. 
We just talked about how they had gone on these missionary journeys and how they seen shared great testimonies of all of these people coming to faith in Christ, all of these people being saved, how churches are being established. Now, what you would expect is they would go back out and do more missionary journeys, and they will do that. But they put all of their ministry on hold because their priority is the truth of the gospel. Now, why was this such a big deal to Paul and to Barnabas and to the apostles and the elders? Why do they make their stand here? Why don't they just say, okay, you guys can believe what you want. We'll believe what we want and go our way. Why was this a priority for them? Well, it's because it struck at the vitals of the gospel, the core of Christianity. We've shared this illustration with some of you before, maybe too many times, uh, but there is a core to Christianity. And the core to Christianity is the gospel. It's the good news of how we can be saved, okay? And we recited it earlier as we recited the Apostles' Creed. That's the core of Christianity. That is worth dividing over. That's worth fighting for. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a priority. And then we have commitments, and commitments are outside the core. And those are things that maybe Christians would take different views on. Like, how do you form your church government? Things of that sort. And then you have convictions even outside the commitments where we would differ here in the church. And so maybe, how do you educate your children? Or what version of the Bible do you read? Things like that. And where things go bad, there's really two ways things go bad. One way things go bad is if you take your convictions or your commitments and you drive them to the core and you make them your gospel. And so maybe you love the King James Bible, but you don't just love the King James Bible. You're like, if you want to be a faithful church, if you want to be a faithful Christian, this is the only version you can read, right? That's taking one of your convictions and pushing it to the core. And that's where things go bad. The other way that this, that the wheels come off the tracks is when you start polluting this core, when you start changing the fundamentals of our religion, the fundamentals of the gospel. And that's exactly what is happening here. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas are fighting against. And so, brothers and sisters, some truths are worth fighting for, the core. They're even worth dying for. And we're called to take a stand for the good news of the gospel, of that by which we can be saved from our sins, because it is a central core issue to our faith. The second way that we take a stand for the gospel is to guard gospel purity. Now, what is the debate here in Acts chapter 15? What is polluting the central core of Christianity? Well, let's look at verse 2. These men said, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot, you cannot be saved. Now, remember, we said the gospel is the good news of how we can be saved. And here in verse 2, these teachers have come in and they said, in order to be saved, you must be circumcised, right? You cannot be saved if you're not circumcised. Now, the problem with that is that circumcision was never intended to save. Circumcision identified God's people, right? Like you wear a Packers jersey, it tells you who you identify with. You identify with the Packers. Circumcision identified people with the Lord God. And in this situation, they're taking something that was not intended to save and saying, you must follow this in order to be saved. Now, as we read on, circumcision was not the only thing these teachers were requiring for salvation. Look at verse 5 with me. We read, but some believers, so these are believers, who belong to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You know, not only had the Jewish 
teachers here misunderstood, sorry, the Jewish Christian teachers misunderstood the gospel. They actually misunderstood really the whole Old Testament, including circumcision and the law. You see, there are three major uses of Old Testament law. Theologians talk about this. One use is to teach humanity right from wrong, right? Like it's good to not commit murder. Can we all agree upon that? Like don't commit murder. That's part of the law. That's good. It also is meant to guide believers in righteousness. This is how you live in a way that pleases the God that you love, right? You have been set free, so here's how you now live free, okay? And the third use of that law is to reveal our sin. You know, as we look at God's perfect holiness, we see, okay, we do not live up to this, and it shows us our need for a Savior. But what one of the purposes isn't and has never been for the law is to be a means for us to be saved, Pastor Sean at the men's retreat talked about this. He said the law is good for what the law is good for. But if you're trying to use the law for something else that's not intended for, it's really useless for that. And so he gave this illustration. He talked about how he was at his house and he was trying to fix something. And he was kind of in a certain difficult position. And so he asked his daughter, he said, honey, can you go get me a wrench? And so she went away and she came back and she brought him a screwdriver. Okay. Now a screwdriver is a good thing, right? If you need to tighten a screw. But if you need a wrench, a screwdriver is useless, right? It, it, it can't tight, tighten a bolt, right? You need a wrench. And so if you take the, the law and you use it in a way that's not intended, it's absolutely useless. It was never intended to save. Does that make sense? And so they were taking the law and they were using it in a way that was inconsistent with the gospel, with what God had intended the law for. And so the law is wonderful for its intended purpose, but they'd erred in applying it and saying, you have to obey all of these things to be saved. Let's continue. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter is referring back to a story that we read in Acts chapter 10 in which God was calling him to Caesarea to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And if you remember, Peter was resistant because he, didn't, he was not convinced that the gospel was to go to Gentiles, but God continued to woo him. And finally he went and he goes to Cornelius' house full of Gentiles and he starts to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he is proclaiming the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes down upon these Gentiles and there is this Gentile Pentecost in which they start speaking in tongues proving that they were saved, proving that the Holy Spirit had filled them. And how did that happen? It didn't happen because they were circumcised. He didn't pull out scissors to make sure everyone could be saved. It didn't happen because they obeyed all the law. In fact, right here, it tells us how it happened. At the end of verse 9, it says their hearts were cleansed. How? By faith, right? Not by, not by works, but by faith. Now, what is faith? Faith, very simply, is entrusting yourself to someone or something. Entrusting yourself to someone or something. Now, you are always, 
acting in faith, whether you know it or not. This morning, you got in your car having faith that it would get you all the way to church. Maybe some of you didn't, but you, most of you believe. Okay, you probably crossed over bridges and you had faith that those bridges would hold you, right? That they would not collapse. Otherwise, you would have taken another route. Right now, you're sitting in chairs and you have faith that that chair is not going to fall apart and you're going to end up on the ground on your back, right? So we're always having faith in something, right? Because faith is entrusting yourself to someone or something. And so when we talk about saving faith, we talk about what do we entrust ourselves to to save us, to save us from the penalty for our sin. You see, all of us have faith in something for salvation. Most have faith in themselves, like these teachers did to a degree. They believed that they had to fulfill certain moral obligations and certain religious obligations, and this would make God save them, right? And they, they were believers, so they probably thought, you know, Jesus is great. Jesus fills the gap. I do so much this far. I get, you know, I get halfway by my good works and by my religious works, and then Jesus takes it the rest of the way. But this is the opposite of the gospel that Paul and Barnabas are defending. They're standing against this thought that saving faith has anything to do with our good works, but it is faith in Jesus alone. Now, faith is one component of how we are saved. It is what we do. We place our faith in the gospel, which we'll talk about more later, but we entrust ourselves to God. But then there is the other component, which comes from God. Let's continue. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Just a quick aside. I love what Peter's saying here. Peter is saying, listen, can we be honest? Let's be honest. None of us have fulfilled the Old Testament law, right? None of us have obeyed it perfectly. So why are we going to make them obey it all to be saved when we ourselves can't obey it? Okay. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace, that's the other component, the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. There's that drumbeat again. And so at the core of Christianity is the gospel, the good news of how we can be saved. And verse 9 tells us that salvation comes through faith in Jesus. And verse 11 tells us that salvation comes through God's grace in Jesus. Grace is simply the unmerited favor of God. It's God's willingness to save you even when you did not deserve it. It's God's loving you even before you loved him. The apostle Paul explains the relationship between grace and faith in Ephesians 2. He says, for by grace you have been saved. That comes from God. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And so what is this telling us? It is telling us that salvation comes through God extending grace to us through his son, Jesus Christ, providing him as a sacrifice for our sins and us by faith claiming that on our behalf. Placing our faith, not in ourselves and our good works, but placing our faith that Jesus is our good enough, that Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins, and that because of Jesus, not because of ourselves, we can now be accepted 
by God for all eternity. Now, what is so mind-blowing about this, when we look at Ephesians 2, 18, is it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then it says, and this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so God offers grace, right, through Jesus, and we receive it by faith. But what Paul tells us is even the faith that you have to receive this gift of grace is a gift from God. And so all of your salvation is a gift of God's grace. And so all of the praise and the glory for salvation goes to God who gives it to us by his grace. This is the heart of the gospel, the core of our faith, which we must protect, the purity of the gospel. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, you know, we really don't have to fight this fight anymore. This was kind of back then when they're first figuring things out. But I would tell you that I think we have to fight for the purity of the gospel more today than ever before. Let me give you this example. I have a friend, this was several years ago, and he and I were talking about spiritual things. He's a church-going guy, went to church every Sunday, extremely generous with his time, uh, helped a lot of folks that were in need, uh, loved his wife, loved his kids. One of those guys that you say, I, I want to be like this guy. He's a great guy right? And so we're talking about the gospel. And I still remember after our long conversation, him looking at me and saying, so wait a minute. So what you're telling me is that a rapist and a child molester can go to heaven. I'm like, you're getting it. (laughs) That's right. And he said, that just seems wrong to me. I can't believe that. But this is the heart of the gospel. It's not what we have done or what we haven't done that saves us. What saves us is Jesus. It is God's grace that we receive by faith that brings salvation to us. Friends, do you believe the pure message of the gospel? Do you believe that you are not beyond saving? Do you believe that you cannot out God's grace? I know some of you are here today probably thinking, I've done things so horrible, so wrong, so sinful. There is no way that God could possibly save me. Well, if this is what you believe, then you are polluting the gospel because the gospel says that you are not saved by your works or by what you have not done wrong, but you are saved simply by placing your faith in Jesus, who God has given to us by his grace. And so we stand for the gospel by acknowledging the priority of the truths of the gospel, but also guarding the purity of the gospel that is by grace through faith and not by our own good works. Thirdly, we take a stand by understanding gospel prophecy. Verse 12 says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. There's a drumbeat again. After they finished speaking, James, now hold on one second. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's probably the moderator of this whole discussion, and he's going to be the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, okay? James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is another name for Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And here's the key point. And all the Gentiles 
who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And so what James is doing as the moderator of this council is he is supporting the experiences and the testimonies of Peter and Paul and Barnabas who have seen many Gentiles come to faith in Christ without being circumcised. And he supports this by doing what? By quoting scripture, by quoting the Old Testament. He's actually quoting here from Amos chapter 9. If you know anything about Amos, he's a minor prophet. And his book is really a book about judgment. And so there's not a lot of happiness in this book. But there are bright moments in which God is promising the redemption of his people, that he will rebuild the house of David. And here he quotes this passage in which God says that when I rebuild my people, amongst them will be people from every nation. There will be Gentiles among this group. And so James is saying, listen, if Gentiles can be a part of this new people of God, then they do not need to become Jews through circumcision before they can become Christians. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation are a part of the new people of God, which is called the church. You know, many times people will write off the Old Testament kind of as irrelevant or Um, just not really as important as the New Testament, right? I don't know if you've ever done this. I think I have where I'm like, you know, I just really need some Jesus today. So I'm just going to read the the New Testament. And so kind of can dismiss the Old Testament as not really as important. But what we see here is that knowing the Old Testament is foundational for really knowing the good news of the gospel. Um, As you look throughout scripture, you see the gospel there. You know, one of my, my proudest moments, but also one of the saddest moments as a pastor is, is one of our members, we were preaching through the Old Testament, they came up to me. And this member had gone, had been raised in a Christian family. They went to Christian elementary school. They went to Christian college, four years at a Bible college. And they start coming to church here and they hear us preaching through the Old Testament. And they said to me, I've never seen the gospel in the Old Testament before. This is the first time I've ever seen the good news of the gospel in the Old Testament. I thought that was a completely different story. I, think, I thought that was plan A that failed, and then God created plan B in the New Testament. And he said, seeing the gospel there brings everything alive. See, the gospel is all over the Old Testament, even from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sin against God, he comes to them, and he makes this promise. He said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Who is the seed of the woman? Who is it? Jesus, by the way, that's the answer 90% of the times in church. So just, if you don't know, just say Jesus. You're probably going to be right, okay? All right? So let's keep practicing this, okay? So then, so then, so then Adam and Eve sin, and God's going to kick them out of the garden. They're covering their shame with fig leaves. And God said, whoa, 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 that's not good enough. That's not good enough. I'm going to slaughter animals for the first time ever. And I'm going to take this bloody sacrifice, and I'm going to cover the sin and shame of the woman with these animal parts. Who shed their blood to cover our sin and shame. Yeah, you're catching on. Really good. Way to go. And then, and then he comes to Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make a nation of you. And from you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And who was his descendant that was a blessing to all the nations of the earth? All right, you're getting it. And then there comes David, right? David's a great king, loves the Lord, man after God's own heart. But he's not the end. God says, hey, from your line, I will bring a king whose kingdom will never end and will reign forever and will be righteous. And who is that king? You're catching on. And so what we see is that 
the whole Old Testament points to the gospel. And so if you're skipping the gospel, it's like skipping the first two parts of a, of a three-part movie. Or what's that called? A, a trilogy. Thank you. I was going to call it a trinity. I knew that wasn't right. A trilogy, right? Now, you can watch that last part and you can enjoy it and love it. But you will lose the richness of what's happening in it if you don't watch the first two parts, right? You know, when we read the Old Testament, it gives us the richness in understanding the good news of the gospel when we get to the New Testament. And so, friends, when you are reading your Old Testament, remember, that is the Bible that Jesus used. That is the Bible that Jesus had. Read the Old Testament. Memorize the Old Testament. Wrestle with it. Love it. Because it is saturated with the gospel of God's grace, with signs and prophecies of the good news of the gospel. And so how do we take a stand? By understanding the prophecies of the gospel in the Old Testament, that we can see the continuity of God's good news of salvation. Finally, we take a stand by living gospel piety. The word piety simply means humbly living out your faith. You've probably heard someone talk about a, a pious person, pious man, pious woman. There's someone who humbly lives out their faith. And so gospel piety is humbly living out the gospel. And this is the exhortation that James is going to give. So let's look back at verse 19. It says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, don't circumcise them. Don't let them obey, make them obey ceremonial law, so on and so forth. Excuse me. Verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, so let's pause here. Because it seems as if James and his letter to the Gentiles, to the churches, is contradicting himself. Like verse 19 and 20 seem like they contradict one another. Verse 19, he says, hey, they don't need to obey the Old Testament law. They don't need to obey the ceremonial law. And the verse 20 is like, hey, here's some parts of the ceremonial law you should obey, right? And so we'll, we'll, we'll guess that James is not a moron, right? Okay. Um, and, and the whole council says, yes, this is good. Let's do this. And so, so what is he trying to communicate? Well, in order to understand, first off, there's, there's one that's unlike the rest, he commands them to abstain from uh, sexual immorality. This is a part of what we call the moral law. There are really three parts of the law, okay? Uh, there's the moral law. You all are learning a lot today. I know it's a lot. There's the moral law, okay, which uh, are still binding today. We talk about you should not kill. Still a good law, right? Okay, that's part of the moral law. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery, things like that. Part of the moral law that are still binding today. So he's saying, hey, this still applies today, right? Like you should still follow these things. It, it was pretty well known that the Gentiles were pretty loose sexually. And so he's saying, no, you should pursue purity in this area according to the moral law. And then there's also the civil law, which was how they governed the political entity of Israel. And so there are rules about, okay, if, if I kill someone's ox on an accident or on purpose, what crime do I have to pay for or what punishment do I have to pay for that? Things like that. That was part of Israel as a political entity. Um, but God's people is no longer a political entity. We're a spiritual entity called the church. And so no longer do we have to repay for killing people's oxen in those ways. But we do have to obey our government, stop at stop signs, drive the speed limit, stuff like that, right? And so there is the moral law, which we still obey, the civil law, which has been done away with because we're no longer a political entity. And then there is the ceremonial law. 
And the ceremonial law is a sacrificial system. And all of it was to point to Christ. And Christ, Christ fulfilled the sacrificial system. He was the, the great sacrifice to cover all of our sin. And so we no longer practice those sacrifices because it all pointed to Jesus. And so when James says abstain from sexual immorality, he's reminding them that the moral law is still good and right and they should obey it. But then as he moves on, he points to some ceremonial law things. He talks about don't eat things that are polluted by idols or from things that have been strangled or that have blood in them. Now, what is so interesting is that there are other parts of the New Testament where, where, where believers are given permission to eat these things, to do these things. You know, it's okay that you have a steak that still has some blood in it, right? It makes it juicy and good. It's okay. So why here do they say abstain from this? Well, it's they're telling them to abstain from eating these things, not because they were sinful practices, but because they were unloving practices. See, at beginning of verse 21, after giving these restrictions, he says, for, or for this reason, don't eat these things. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You see, James and the council are calling the Gentiles to lay aside certain practices that are not sinful in order to win Jews to Jesus and in order to fellowship with Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. One commentator puts it this way. He says, James tactfully proposed that both Jews and Gentiles practice restraint. Why? For the purpose of fellowship. Remember, God is creating a new people composed of both Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying, lay these things aside so that you guys can eat dinner together. You can fellowship together and you're not being distracted by these conversations. You can talk about Jesus. Let me give you an example. Let's pretend you're called to be a missionary in a Muslim country. Now, Muslims don't eat pork. They don't eat bacon, right? One of the best things. Anyways, uh, now, if you were a missionary and you went to this Muslim country, would it be sinful for you to eat pork? The answer is not Jesus, by the way. <laughs> if you went to this Muslim country as a missionary, would it be sinful for you to eat pork? No. Would it be unloving? Probably. Right? Because here you are surrounded by people that, that, that hold this belief to not eat pork. And so when you sit and you fellowship with either new converts or maybe someone who's investigating the faith and you're like, I'm going to eat this bacon dish wrapped of pork, you know, I'm going to have this. Suddenly the conversation switches from being about Jesus to being about why can you eat pork? Does that make sense? And so he's saying, hey, you are entitled to eat these things, but give them up for the sake of fellowship. Give them up for the sake of community and the gospel. You know, a couple years ago, um, we have, you, you guys, if you've been here for a while, you know we have this Ladies Beat the Blues event a couple times in the winter. And it used to be called the Women's Wine and Cheese event, all right? And it's, it used to be called that, and I'll explain why. Um, we called this Women's Wine and Cheese event, and it was cool. Women loved it. It was enjoyable. And, and there was a new couple to the church. They'd been there a few months. They were very encouraged by the church. They were growing in the Lord. And they had had a history with alcoholism that left them very scarred and wounded. And he came to me and he said, you know what? This is really hard for us. This is really difficult for us that a church would promote a wine and cheese event, okay? Like, it's okay if you have it there, but please just don't promote it. Like, that's just, that's very difficult for us. And so I try to explain to him, like, wine is a good thing. I mean, it's a gift from God. Jesus turned water into 
wine, right? Um, and, and so we, aren't, we shouldn't get drunk, right? We shouldn't have too much. And this is an opportunity to redeem the way people use alcohol. Like this is our opportunity. Now, now, now was it a sin for us to call it a wine and cheese event? No. Was it unloving? Maybe. I mean, we don't cater to everyone's whims. Don't get me wrong, but, but this is a cultural issue. I haven't lived in Northeast Wisconsin much of my life. And I'll tell you as an outsider coming in, it is astonishing how pervasive alcoholism is here. It is astonishing how many of you struggle with this. It is astonishing how many families have been broken apart by alcoholism. And so maybe we need to think about how we use this to love people who have a history with this substance. Or maybe, let me give it to you another way. Let's say you're, you're going out to eat with your Catholic friends and it's a Friday, right? And you go and, and they're ordering the fish fry and you're like, give me a ribeye, right? Give me a ribeye wrapped in bacon or whatever. <laughs> maybe you don't order the ribeye. Maybe you order the fish so that the discussion isn't about why can I eat meat but the discussion's about Jesus. Does that make sense? It's not sin to eat meat on Fridays, in case you didn't know. But maybe it's unloving to do so. And so Peter is calling the Gentiles the gospel piety for the sake of building up the body of Christ. And so maybe there are things that are free for you to do that God is calling you to forsake and to give up for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of the gospel. Let's keep going. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings. And so it's a circular letter going to lots of churches. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words that they need to be circumcised, be saved, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it had seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Why did they rejoice? Because the purity of the gospel had been stood for. Because the purity of the gospel of grace had been established, had been confirmed. Verse 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. How can we take a stand for the gospel? 
by the way we live, by living gospel piety, giving up things that we are rightfully able to do for the sake of growing in fellowship and sharing the gospel with others. Let me end with this. I read an article this past week by a gentleman named Bruce Johnson, and he was writing about the rise and dominance of Google, okay? And he asked this question. He says, what makes Google so remarkable? Why has it grown so much? Why is it so expansive? And to answer this question, he simply encourages his readers to do a simple comparison by logging on to four web browsers, to log on to Yahoo, to log on to MSN search, to log on to Netscape, and to log on to Google. And then he asks the question, what is the difference between these four? Do you know what's the difference between those four search engines? What is it? It's not Jesus. Okay. Google is simple. Google is simple. See, it's so it's, it's so easy to add stuff, isn't it? And so they add all of these videos, this news, this weather. And people have trouble even seeing the search bar anymore. I've heard this rumor, and it's a rumor. I don't know if it's true. But evidently, when, when Google was growing, they had someone. And their only job was to tell advertisers no. Like advertisers say, hey, we'll give you all this money to advertise on your homepage. No. Sounds like a great job right? I could, I could do this job. No, you can't do it, right? If you go to the Google homepage, all there will be is Google, a search bar, and a few words around the periphery. You know, we have been called to take a stand for the gospel. And in many ways, our call to take a stand for the gospel is to push all the distractions out of the way, to keep the purity of the gospel, to keep the priority of the gospel, to live out the piety of the gospel, so that others might know the joy of the gospel, that we are saved not by works, but by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, when we receive it by the faith that he has given to us as a gift. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that I don't have to measure up, Lord. God, I pray for those here who maybe are on this performance treadmill trying to gain your approval, that they would know that they could never earn it by their own merit but it is completely theirs in your son, Jesus Christ. May we rejoice in this gospel, enjoy this gospel, live in light of this gospel, and may this gospel spread over all of your creation. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded that this gospel, while free to us, did not come free at all. It came at the cost of your only son, your beloved son, who died as a substitute for us that we can be in relationship with you forever. And so we pray, God, through these sacraments, through these elements, that you would nourish us in our faith. Remind us of how good the good news is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus is approaching the time where he's going to accomplish the good news of the gospel, he sits down with his disciples to talk about the past, to celebrate the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was a meal reminding us of God's deliverance, God's salvation for the people of God from Egypt. And it was done not by their works, but by the power of God, by the grace of God. And so Jesus takes this Passover meal and he turns it into the Lord's Supper, showing us that our salvation is not by works, but by grace through faith. And we read that Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. 
And then he took a cup and when he gave it thanks, he gave it to him saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, if you are here today, and you have trusted in Christ, in Christ alone for your salvation. If you've met with the elders of this church or another gospel preaching church that affirm what you have professed with your mouth, this is for you to nourish you in your faith, to remind you that you cannot save yourself, that it's not in what your hands bring, but it's in Christ alone. If you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, if, if maybe you're still trying to earn God's favor, God's love, We want you to know him, but this table is not for you yet. This is only for those who say, all of my hope, all of my faith is in Christ alone. I also want to say, if you're here today, maybe there's sin in your life that you are just struggling with and you are weighed down and you think, I'm too dirty to take this. All of us are too dirty to take this. If you repent, if you say, Lord, I repent of it. I give it over to you. I'm done with it. I want to live for you. This is for you to nourish you in your fight to live in accord with the good news of the gospel. We'll have several stations set up. When you're ready, please go and take, bring the elements back to your seat. If, you, if you're not too mobile, we'll try to bring it to you. If we miss you, just kind of raise up your hand uh, and we'll all partake together as one body.